Element Rescue here with a podcast that is actually our second one, Brian. We recorded this. Yeah, that this is part two, right? And where we're not actually even publishing part one. And it was, I think it was a screwed up timing, man, because we did it right before everything blew the shit up from COVID. Yes. And, and yeah. I think even because of that, I think it's good because some of uh, the focus and stuff that we'll be hitting on we kind of talked about afterwards and things have evolved since then. So we would have needed to do a part two and update it anyways. But, uh, so we just opted to redo call the redo on this one and I lost it. Right. I couldn't find it on that stupid ass flash drive. So I'm going to maintain like chain of custody on this thing and hand it over to Julie to edit this thing afterwards. But all right. So anyways, we got to start from scratch on this one. So, so we are talking to a good friend of mine, Brian Howe, who is uh, currently actually on duty saving lives and property in an undisclosed area of the West Coast. So, yeah, firefighter, SWAT medic, um, take a second and just kind of give a quick background on yourself, Brian. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for having me. I work for a Southern California fire department. Been in the fire service for 22 years. Been a medic for 21 of that, and uh, one of our lead medics on the SWAT team. Uh, been on the SWAT team for seven years, and you know, I, you know, do what they say: jack of all trades, master of none, something like that. I do a lot of rope stuff, um, leading up our rope rescue cadre, uh, rim stuff, which I think we're going to talk about today. Doing rescue task force stuff, teaching at the college, doing active shooter stuff, teaching locally around the county, all things along the curriculum development element i think that's why we're such good friends i think so um two so two things i just took two notes real quick uh even on this just because i probably have to take another adderall here in a second i know i took one right when we first started talking like two hours ago but um, yeah two things and obviously i get out to california quite a bit i actually lived there when i was a kid uh in redondo beach but and so uh, the reason i preface this is that i don't mean this comment to be rude but since you brought up southern (laughs) california and myself being a firefighter from the East Coast, what's your general take on the on the helmets you guys wear, man? Oh well, you know where I'm at. Leather traditional. Are they really? Long. Okay, now, cool. If you're gonna, yeah, if you're gonna, if you're gonna slide up the coast to Redondo or Hermosa, yes, or yeah, uh, you know the other the other LA nation up there, which I don't get up to, but uh. I don't know what to say, man. Not a fan. Okay. The flower, the flower pots are just distracting. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's it's just, it always kind of like looked at me. I mean, busy departments. I mean, they're they're baller, man. I got it. But you know, you look at it, you're like, I don't know, man. I just, I guess, I just have that old old school traditional. Uh, yeah. You know, lid on. Well, yeah. So the, just, the flower the flower pots look funny, and in my mind, they're too light for structure. But they also wear them in wildland, and they're like way too heavy for wildland stuff. So I don't know what the deal is, dude. But they're almost they European. Funny. They're almost European. Yeah. Almost, very yeah. close. Yeah, could, but we're we're be. leather tradition down awesome. here, man. Dude, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. The other thing, which is <laughs> yeah. funny, that you said is jack of all trades, uh, master of none. Right? Is uh, it's funny because that I'm reading another book. This book called Polymath which is just an incredible book anybody listening and it kind of falls in line a little bit with uh range right which is a great book too Mm -hmm. 
which that jack of all trades master of none kind of falls in that generalist versus um you know specifics like the fox versus the hedge uh, hedgehog the hedgehog <laughs> being like the specialist knows one discipline hugely deep like in there but has no real understanding of anything to the right or left where the generalist is like you know head on a swivel this and that knows a lot about a lot but you know instead of being the top one percent of their field they're within the top 25 percent of a bunch of fields and what's really funny is back in the day you know the jack of all trades master none was a slight that you know specialists used and Mm -hmm. now it's actually used against specialists where generalists have been found not only in the super prediction games and the uh ability to move within non-linearity and 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 chaos and complexity to where the generalist the actually jack of all trades master of none is the complement countering the specialist view which is very narrow and doesn't permeate across yeah. disciplines very well which is kind of funny so when you said that i'm like that's funny as shit because i'm reading a book that's talking about <laughs> well, i think it's going to bleed into what we're talking about it's absolutely bleed into what i think we're going to talk about today for sure like that you can be a technician and something all you want but when we start talking about rims and rescue task force like that only helps you in a very finite area and it's funny because um you know you and i've talked about ellen langer who's just uh you know a baller Psychologist, she wrote you know that book Mindfulness, and and she's the one who studied mindlessness, mm-hmm. but then ended up writing the book Mindfulness. But like, I think it's just went through its like thirtieth or fortieth year, freaking you know, uh, being in print, and it's classic, man. They're using it throughout every organization I know of that that uses that book. It's just incredible. But you know, that's kind of her thing. Is she's like, listen, like everything you think you know can be proven wrong in another context and she gives this great (laughs) example of you know everybody you know she asked the audience you know what's one plus one everybody's like two and she's like sometimes if your base system (laughs) if your base system is 10 if your base system of two is two then one plus one is 10 or if you have one piece of chewing gum and you take it out of your mouth and i have a piece of chewing gum i take it out of my mouth and we push them together. Now one plus one is one. And she's like, it just depends on the context you're speaking of. And I think that's it. Where specialists that dive into one arena, like it's that whole old school analogy of you're a hammer, man. And regardless of what you're looking at, it's a nail. Being able to have a variety of different views that sometimes oppose but complement each other across the board. And that's the beauty of nonlinearity, right? Back in the day, like sciences, you know, biologists were especially uh, ecologists were especially physicists were especially you know you had these specialties and they didn't cross pollinate very well right because they were so specific in those things but once you once non-linearity came into play you know back in the late 60s early 70s and has grown to where it's grown now that's the beauty of non-linear physics and actually real world everything whether you're talking real world biology with uh or ecology with predator prey cycles or physics or whatever is the beauty of non-linearity is what you know in non-linear physics totally ramps your shit up for ecology and nonlinear or nonlinear biology, which is actually what the human body is as far as physiology. We've just tried to linearize it through the years. For some reason, we stick on to yeah. the knowings of the 1700s and think that's somehow relevant today where one system doesn't interact with the other and we have terms like homeostasis that we still rely on. But anyways, uh, <laughs> should be allostasis, should be allostasis, and I guess that's kind of the next brief, but whatever. So what we're blinding talking about... Me with I'm blinding you with sites, but I'm blinding you with stray voltage until my Adderall can 
kicks in, I think, is the deal, man. All right, so what do we plan on talking about? We're going to start off with some Rescue Task Force and hit you up. I think you wrote an article or you worked on a paper and some for a national organization that, that you were hitting that on, but written an article. Um, you and I have been in a lot of contact probably from the time we first met concerning the topic of Rescue Task Force. And we've done yeah. a lot of various podcasts on there. I've done some speaking out at the at some conferences out in California where, uh, you know, uh, whether like everybody either loved what I was saying or I had groups that wanted to <laughs> freaking kill me because it didn't fit the model that, that they saw as what they wanted to extend to every right. department in their state, which should tell you something there, right? As if yeah, every exactly. single department has the same capabilities. But um, so you and I, I think, are very much on completely the same page. But give a quick background of, I know you've started initiating Rescue Task Force stuff in your area, but on top of that, you've worked with other agencies because your tactical background, but hit on some of the things that you saw out there, some of the myths, some of the things that people were trying to do or some of the friction points that were running uh, the spectrum of trying to in- initiate something that sure. would be effective. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think my narrative is going to be probably pretty similar to most and, you know, everybody was, has been blasted with NFPA 3000 and um, this, this, what was kind of considered a very quick onset of, you know, these active shooter events and it just got worse and just got worse. And, all of a sudden departments were trying to develop, you know, the, the one round peg answer that's going to fit all the square hole problems. And it was kind of just being shoved down our throat. You know, this is how we're going to train. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do every single time. You know, even just simple stuff like, Hey, you have to set up a CCP on the alpha side front door. Cause that's where we're going to go in. And you will always uh, initiate these ICS positions first and you will always do this and you'll always do that. And, you know, and great discussions with you and with some other people around the county just going, uh, well, you know, we, we can't always just do this. You, if you train for a school shooting and you always are going to set up an outside front door CCP, what happens when that's where you find the IED? What happens when you have an elevated shooting position? What happens when you have a, a single barricaded shooter in a closed box? What happens when you have a multiple shooter barricaded in a closed box like there's all these other problems that you can't fit this into so i think that's where our you know friendship and relationship kind of took off was taking a much more critical look at rtf and so um what we're adopting down here and and, you know kudos to kind of where i'm working is you know i think they realize that there are experts out there um that are trying to you know push this kind of into the future and bringing a lot lot of other curriculums side by side with rescue task force and and trying to really broaden the horizons on what departments are, are doing out here so I'm, I'm currently in the process with my host department on uh, really updating our guidelines but we're also working at a county level to update our emergency operations manual uh, at the county level so things are moving but of course they're moving slowly as they do <laughs> yeah i think you know obviously being involved with this topic all the time because of CTEC. It's interesting because of all the different opinions you hear. And, you know, we live in this world of constantly evolving practice that um, is never good, right? And, and it's not based on validity. It's not based on truth or veritas. It's, it's what thing kind of worked in somebody's training. And now I'm going right. to write about yeah. it and everybody's like, oh, God. 
because that person's this person or an empty or whatever, like now we got to listen. And what people yeah, realize is like, true. yeah, you don't, you don't have to listen. You don't have to listen <laughs> to stupid shit ever. It's amazing. The amount of, uh, stupid shit that gets thrown out there without ever being validated or without the simple caveat of, Hey, listen, this did work in this exact context, which means it may right. not work in your next situation since we can't call Dion Warwick psychic hotline and figure out when the next active shooter <laughs> event is going to be right. So, you know, and I think yeah. that's the thing is, is people are under the impression that, Hey, if something worked here or didn't work there, then it should be thrown out or it should be adopted. Right. And it's like, listen, yeah. man, like why did it work? What was the response paradigm? There's so many variables. It's nonlinear, right? It's unpredictable. Yes. So the fact that if I change one small thing on the next event that occurred where you live compared to, let's say, something that occurred, let's say, in California, man, like really close proximity, right? And I change mm -hmm. a couple of the initial conditions, I just changed the entire freaking event, which Absolutely. will mean that that one TTP that you built on and trained the shit out of that doesn't yeah. give you room to – call audibles in because it's a ttp it's a strict sop yep. then yeah it could work or it won't work it's hard <laughs> it's it's hard well, to say right and and people don't realize like holy shit man like you've got to write your sops loose enough that you can adapt to differing variables is it one shooter is it two shooters it is it inside is it outside is it at a school is it at you know at a concert is it here is it there all these things yeah. play such a role in it that like you better just know your shit and you need to know yeah. your out outcome and then whatever you have to do to improvise because you're going to improvise like you're going to be doing deliberate improvisation and in that because no two events are the same and no, no one technique is going to work the same in those environments. That's just an uncomfortable thing that people hate. They want the easy button and say, listen, if we yeah. do this and this, then you know, we can check the box and yep. we're kind of cover from a legal liability stance and it's probably going to work. There's no confidence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's none. You're going to have to pull shit out of your ass all the time and although you're yeah. trying to do this it's like setting an azimuth it's like doing land nav man like if you're setting that land nav up and all of a sudden you're like hey i'm setting my azimuth and i'm staying straight on this thing and it's putting you up a freaking ice waterfall cliff you're like you're like oh dude <laughs> um you know what i should probably veer off to the left here i'm gonna try and avoid this once i hit this side you know my left or right parameter like i'll break back in and start heading the other direction back back towards my azimuth like that's how you yeah. run an RTF. That's how you run an entire active shooter yeah. call, man, is calling audibles and gaining information from the environment. And that's what I think makes the, the higher ups so nervous is that they, they just can't politicize this thing to death. They can't find the recipe that just works and they'll run tests and they'll run drills and they'll go, well, you know, we, we, we got through it and that's, that's going to be it. And you know, you come in full circle training on this stuff. It's like anymore, man, you just need to you train critical thinkers. You need to That's get it. your tacticians and your rescue specialists and everybody all together and just really trust the operators that are giving you, you know, the intelligence of what's going on and let them be free critical thinkers and support that. And that's the hardest part, um, especially for like really politicized California fire departments, you know, and I think big municipal cities that love. Policy. Yeah. And that's fire departments everywhere, man, is everybody wants the, yeah. 
easy button solution. Hey, listen, like I want you to pull, you know, three inch, you know, this with a smooth bore for a high rack. You know, it, it's like it works until it doesn't. Yeah. Everything's everything's awesome until it's not awesome. And, yeah. you know, and that's it. And, you know, a buddy of mine, you know, from the Marshall, Scott Kimball, that, you know, has got some funny sayings, of most of which I probably shouldn't repeat on here. But but <laughs> but in that, right, you know, as shitty of a technique as you just t- chose, you know, the comment is, that's eh, a, that's a technique. And then there's silence, right? It's it, 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 it is a technique, yeah. right? It's a technique that you know, pretty much firmly places your head up your own ass, but that is a technique. So that's yeah, – but you know, what's interesting too is, is it, it is. leads into this other thing too that there's this guy, Gerd, uh, and I always dick his last name up, man. But he's like brilliant, nonlinear dude from – oh, where is he, man? He's at the Planck Institute or whatever out of Germany. Uh, but it's like great. Giger Enzer, Giger Enzer, something like that. Anyways, I have like all his papers, man. That. It sounds reasonable, right? I'll, I'll blur it. Yeah. It sounds like we have a bad connection. And uh, but yeah, so anyways, uh, I, I I'm on a first name basis with him. I just call him Gerd. Um, yeah, so it's G E R D. We're boys. On, we're we're friends on LinkedIn. And uh, so anyways, but my point being is he's pretty much like the leading one of the leading SMEs on heuristics. Delivery heuristics and using them in situations that have high consequence and time compression so you do not have the time to do the the thinking and decision making that like Kahneman Tversky talk about right uh, optimization mm-hmm. where if I don't have the answer I need to hunt around and research till I have that answer, then I weigh my options and make my decision. Gerd, his son, listen, then like, you've got to make a decision now. So he writes about heuristics in uh, crisis response, terrorism response, all these types of things. But he has this great paper that everybody should look up. And if you don't have it, text me and I'll send it to you guys. It's uh, heuristics tools for an uncertain world. And what's interesting about that is he like basically shoves it in the face of not just fire departments, emergency management systems, EMS, even special operations for DOD, but how we handle risk. And when we yeah. look at that, right, when we look at how policies come out, the the foundation of it for federal and municipals, municipalities is, is a lot of times based on risk. And what's interesting is at some point we started confusing doing risk mitigation with uncertainty and those two things mm-hmm. are super are, are completely separate actually the original author addressing this is back in the 50s uh Gerd just brings it to light with the new knowledge of of complexity and what's interesting is is if you think about risk for you to hey i need you to do a a, a medical risk assessment for your next swat call or for the protest that's going on brian yeah when you look at that if you would write that truly you're going to have areas that your admin is going to fault you on. The reason is, is by definition, when you're doing risk mitigation, risk assessment forms, whether they're medical or tactical or anything like that, risk is by definition where all the options, consequences, and probabilities are known, which is kind of funny. Because the majority of what we deal with is is, is not risk. It's not risk. Like there's certain risks. 
But you can yeah. think about risks to your force, right? So, you know, I'm worried, yeah, okay, we're doing this high-risk warrant. I'm worried, you know, th- some of the risk potentials is these guys are armed. Counter that with preventive measures of body armor and tactics that we're using. But in the end, I can get an operator shot. I get a couple operators shot. Um, if they're using something that could potentially defeat the body armor yeah. we're wearing, that's a problem. Uh, so I can start looking at risks. Uh, Duke could jump out of the van and sprain his ankle. Like what? I mean, it goes uh, down <laughs> rabbit holes everywhere, right? But it's but a lot of what really concerns us is the uncertainty. And what's funny is uncertainty is handled in a completely different manner than a risk equation. Because if you know all the options, consequences and probabilities, now we can make plans. Right. How much am I willing to risk now? Because I know all the things. There are no uncertainties. And if you look at economic times or a company buying another company, they try and veer out all the uncertainties and get to knowns. Uh, but in our world, dude, all we deal with for the most part is uncertainty. It's the it's the you Absolutely. know to quote Taleb, it's, it's the black swan or it's the, you know it's that sucker punch. We all have a plan until we get sucker punched or we get hit in the mouth. And so what's interesting is uncertainty is handled completely different. And so I think when you look at just rescue task force and what briefs really well, risk briefs really well. Uncertainty doesn't. <laughs> we live in a world of nonlinearity, which inherently yeah. has uncertainty, right? If you look at VUCA T squared, the U is uncertainty. Yep. Well, you know, like, holy shit, like am- ambiguous, like complex. So <laughs> a lot of our, our mitigation of risk is inconsequential when we're looking at what is our rescue task force capability and how do we deliberately deploy them. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with with all that. It's it's and it's a it's a little bit of a breakaway, I think, for the people that are trying to sign off on this stuff and what they're comfortable with. So it's taken a lot of kind of back end education, you know, to try and catch them up to speed. But I would say a lot of the time they see it and they they understand like what we're trying to put across here and and um, support you know the people that are actually going in to do the work and just takes it takes a lot of time and unfortunately these things aren't going away anytime soon you know yeah and i would tell like admins like you should embrace uncertainty and the reason you should embrace uncertainty yeah that's gonna guide you in how you write your sops to be adaptable to multiple contexts and giving the enabling or um i guess enabling your ground guys, right? The guys on the ground moving in the environment mm-hmm. with the threats, the decisions should be on them because they are in the yes. fight. Your yeah. goal as an admin outside of command needs to do whatever you can to relieve friction points that keeps them from making decisions. If you give a good commander's intent, they're going to make things happen on the ground without exactly. having to ask all these permissions and this and this and this. In the yeah. end, Rescue Task Force is a pretty straightforward end state. Get people out that are incapable well, of getting themselves like out the, the overall, that are injured as fast as possible with the yeah, security assets of teaming up with PD, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the push. Like, if I had to sum it up into one thing, um, and I stole this, I didn't make this up, but the rescue task force, I think, has been misunderstood as your go-to tactic. And what I really just try and, and hammer down on people is rescue task force is the overall strategy. And there's all sorts of tactics that you can employ to support that strategy. Mm-hmm. But 
that isn't your one size tactic. You can't just say, we're just going to rescue task force the shit out of this thing and from all angles and get it done. Like the strategy by your command should be to go affect good rescue with, you know, various components that create a task force. How you do that, man, like, like you could have, uh, you know, safety corridors, you have CCPs, you have quick connects, you have all these different things that you can employ to support that. And that's kind of like the best way I can explain it, you know, for, for admin chiefs and stuff that are just trying to catch up to this NFPA 3000 and, and get that stuff out to the troops. Yeah, and it is. It, it's a it's a tool, man. And don't make it more complex than it needs to be. If you bring complexity yep. into complexity, it's now an exponent, which will take things completely out of control. Mirror <laughs> things that you do. If you are integrating fire department response into uh, as a rescue task force capability where you marry up a security element from PD and you marry that with the fire department, why are you marrying it up with fire department? Probably because fire departments do rescue. Right. So here's the thing. Don't dictate how the fire department's rescue. Let them internally go. All right. What do we do? Uh, We do rapid intervention. Is there techniques we do in rapid intervention? So we're not recreating the wheel that we could (laughs) we could alter slightly to fit this context. Sure. Are there other techniques? Can we do a a bend and search? type of methodology to, to keep people honest, yep. right? It's like there, sure, man, like, then we can yep. actually approach from outside the building, right? Throw a ladder, break the wedding into a place that already has lockdown. So now we're not crowding the hallways and stuff. Send in our rescue task force, anybody that's injured in those classrooms uh, and those that are not, we can evacuate out just like we do event under search and never run into an issue of going through and having to secure all these corridors inside a building, right? And now we can take yep. a lot less security. But my point being is, is, Adapt on what you know and and help it fit the context of that situation so you're not trying to perfect a technique that you may never once use in your career. Use, sub, use blended techniques that you right. use and you train on for multiple different contexts that you call an audible here and there and it fits the context of that situation really, really well and you're not relearning something on something that you may never even use and exactly. we will need it that one time, you're going to dick it up. Because you're like, hey, yeah. I, I don't remember. How, do, how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to do it? Because it's so far off from the norm of what you do. <laughs> yes. And and really, when it comes down to it, you're, you're doing the stuff that you normally do, everyday fire department stuff. You're, you're breaching, been in search. Um, I'm a big fan of like lobby control, you know, getting electronic key cards yep. out to the contact teams. And, and you're running it like a high-rise fire. You know, yep. you've got your RIC teams and you got this. At the end of the day, you just have to understand you're operating in a warm zone. And you need some sort of force protection or you need to be in a, in a security corridor, a secure island that has strategic sentry points around just to watch your back. Yep. And like that's the easiest way to kind of break it down. It is. And, and the, the thing that bothers me so much is in the end, rescue task force have existed as long as first responders have. You can go back to rescues that occurred, rescuing cops and civilians in the Watts riots. You can go back into L.A. in mm-hmm. the 90s, right, with the Rodney King rioting, where rescues yep. were done on civilians, on store owners, on police officers and first responders, where all of a sudden a couple of firemen got called up by cops and like, hey, dude, we're going to secure. Yeah, we'll we'll keep you safe. Can you grab this guy and treat him? Yeah, you bet. Or we could look yeah. at freaking Columbine. And see a fire engine moving to a casualty over by what's now the library, but before then it was that other wing and the and the cafeteria blocking off the thing with cops 
holding guns around the sides of the fire truck with firemen treating in there and then evacuing out. That is by definition a fucking rescue task force. But then all of a sudden we yes. lab- we labeled yes. it for an ICS structure. And now people are trying to codify something that was organically already being done. And technically, dude, when they pulled the the dude out of the uh, window of the library, mm-hmm. that was a rescue task force also where they were trying to set up ladders on top of the rescue rig. So uh, you yeah. saw multiple RTFs going on in Columbine in 99 before there was such a thing as a rescue task force. It was being done by what we would consider an yeah. RTF now. Um, and, and yet now we're trying to – They're just all doing these, what they do. They do what they do. That's it, man. And a lot of times it's brown rescue, right? It's yeah. being pulled out of your ass on yeah. site when you see realize what your variables <laughs> are, what your threats are, and you're putting the game plan together in the dirt and all right, good, go. And that's it. Yeah. And and that's that's what we do because that's what you do every day. Every day. You you analyze your risk, you come up with your you know, primary solutions, your your alternates, your contingencies, and you freaking make some decisions. That's You're it, supported man. by your command staff. Yeah. I mean, how many times does shit change just in a, a, a structure fire? That's a couple of alarms, like a working structure fire. I mean, shit's changing yeah. because you can't predict exactly what went on before you got there, man. And now you're having yeah. to, to deal with that. So let alone on the PD side, they do the same same damn thing. So now it's just blending making ad hoc capability so in the end the bigger that toolbox of techniques you can do the better you're going to be and being flexible man yep and i mean and you hit another point there too like getting the cross training done with your local departments pd and, and fire is huge and i think what i see too much going on are just these over the top large scale drills you know you're inviting everybody in the world to come try and replicate you know these small events and 98% 98% of the people aren't getting anything out of it. You just need to keep it small, keep it rank based, start, you know, with your small circle of responders. Cause it's not going to be your key players that are going to show up to scene on these things. Dude. It's your, it's your beat cops that are brand new. It's your, your firemen that are newer and you just happen to be on that day. Like, you know, there's, there's all sorts of variables that we're talking about that you can't put into play. So you just got to start small and, and work your way up. And it's, a, it's like years long <laughs> process to develop that stuff. It is, man. You know, it's funny, too, is we changed a bunch in our, our teaching just because obviously, you know, the parameters that uh, of, you know, what, what our parameters are for teaching. A lot of times it's we have to put like 30 pounds of shit in a five pound sack with the amount of time we have with the end user whether it's a (laughs) pre-deployment or it's a specialized training or anything you never have enough time and then they don't have enough time because they're missing a shinsel tasseless their medalist is well beyond just what we're teaching right they've got all these other things that they got to do on top of that so their ability to constantly focus just on what we're training on isn't so We've got to create the ability for them to like organically know how to do shit and how to improvise on the fly. So in the end, like over the years, you know, we have stopped showing, hey, this is how you do a not pass or this is how you do this. What we do is we set up the foundation, right, to to know just the Mm -hmm. processes and how to exploit them. And then we just send out problems and we provide a safety net for them as we titrate reality into it. But we let them solve the problems and the amount of learning that gets accomplished in a very short amount of time is an exponent to you trying to teach them something that your way yeah, of doing totally. it. Because your way of doing it will work 
in the context that you're teaching them. It will not yeah, help that them one if all of a sudden yeah. they're somewhere else in the world with other threats and other constraints and they don't have this piece of gear or they don't have that. They don't understand how the magic came about to even make it happen right. about it, uh, tactically improvis- uh, uh, do improvisation. So we started just throwing out problems and problem solving. And what's interesting is if I teach you something and it's like, okay, here's how you pass a knot. Here's how you do a pickoff. And step one, you know, cut a hole in the box. Step two, have her open the box. <laughs> step three, yeah, it's your dick in the box. It's um, right. Like you're remembering these steps. It automatically sets forth like a, a cortisol sympathetic uh, reaction mm-hmm. of, of nervous. Did I remember that? Dude, I can remember. Dude, I remember one, two. Is this three or is this four is which order those go yeah. do, I do this before this or what and in that like that is the problem with 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 tightly coupled sops man where if you give them a problem to solve like your average firefighters paramedics and cops dude they're gonna solve it in the bike hey dude okay all right cops are like hey dude we're gonna provide security we usually do it like this You're like all right cool this is how we do this rescue. They're like, oh shit, cool, do that. If you're doing that, then we can actually adapt this. You know, so all of a sudden they start working this collaborative effort, which actually produces dopamine, which is actually a really enjoyable drug yeah. in your brain, right? And uh, which is partially re- responsible for the Adderall uh, that take in, but but it produces this this dopamine response where it's problem solving, right? And now that's what we're all good at is problem solving, adapting, and having this happen. To where I, I would wonder, and we, we've done this at a very local uh, uh, level, you know, kind of a microscopic level in some of our trainings that we've been able to do in various regions where we've done rescue task force is we will tell them, hey, listen, here's some of the key highlights you need to make sure you have. You need to have a good security element, that security element, like that fire department or those medics, dude, are literally your precious cargo you are doing protective service detail on them, right? So you don't leave them, yeah. right? You're yeah. with them the whole time, right? You conform into what they do. All right, you guys, you need to be hasty, right? The, these guys are going to, but you also need to make sure that you don't, you know, do this and this. You got to work together as a team, blah, blah, blah. So with that being said, here's the problem. We're not going to show you how to solve it. Start working together. And you throw it out there and the collaboration that you see, the self-organization, which is natural for a nonlinear system, that self-organization and their understanding and what they come up with is freaking incredible. It's something that no yeah. admin could sit down and whiteboard because they're so used to doing it and they already know where the strengths and weaknesses of what they're setting it up will be. They're like, okay, dude, that'll be cool for this and this, but if we have this, then what are you going to do? Oh, shit. All right, you know exactly. what? I'll hold security this way or I'll call someone else. You know, dude, they're problem solving in real time by handing yeah. over the freaking reins and not micromanaging them giving them a problem and doing it. So I'd be interested to hold a large level training and be like, hey, listen, here's the here's the end states you guys need to make sure that you have accounted for, right? You need a good security element. You need to do rapid uh, assessment and evacuation of these casualties. You need to get them out from point A to somewhere wherever your point B is and hand off and get ready to go back live. You need to do it as fast as possible with minimal stuff with uh, depleted uh, organic assets. All right, so here's your problem. Here's your problem. Here's your problem. Here's your problem. Everybody, and they're different problems. I want you guys to solve them, come up with what you feel good, and then I want you to brief it back to the other groups, and then they'll murder board what they think of it and just see what the collaboration comes out to be. And I guarantee it's going to be 10 times the efficacy of how we normally do freaking active shooter RTF drills. Absolutely. 
And and you're you teaching them how to think. You're teaching them how to think. Right. <laughs> yep. That's it, man. Right. That's and that's the end, that's the end game. And you know, I don't know how to teach really good critical thinking and stuff, but um, those kind of exercises with, with that dopaminergic release and everything, creating good neuroplasty and memory channels like that gets you excited about how to be creative and go in there and and just do what you do creatively with what you got and get it done safely yeah that's it man and i think you know your, your understanding cool. of it is much deeper because you know being in the fire service for a long time you obviously been in the fire service for a long time and still in the fire services i mean how many times did we get like an sop down from training or admin because of an incident that occurred and what they put yeah. down to us, what do we, we all looked at each other like, dude, did you see the new SOP for, you know, whatever? Yeah. And you're like, no, let me see it. And you're like, oh, God, dude, that's not going to work here or there. That, you know what I'm saying? Like, we know that. No. So, you know, by yep. putting it in the people on the ground's hands and letting them self-organize and problem solve, they're going to know when it'll work, when it won't. But more importantly, they know it not from route memorization of step one, step two, step three. They just know it as they, a system. They just right? know they it. You'll see it. it. They built it. You see the flaws. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. And they built it. So there is no Absolutely. question of like, oh, dude, are we doing this right? Or dude, were we supposed to do this before this? No, because you built it. You created it and you understand it. You're not in a Gaussian curve anymore. <laughs> but I think that being yeah. said, when we look exactly. at 2000, I do think it is vitally important for people to – think outside the box and go to, and I hate saying that because you're never outside the box, right? Uh, I think that's such a stupid term and I used it, which is awesome. But thinking outside the box is literally one of the <laughs> stupidest terms ever because we're, we're all in a box. So if I'm telling you, hey, think outside the box, you're still in the box. You're in the box of an active shooter box. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That you're, you're still in, you still yeah. have constraints, right? You're given constraints. Now you have to problem solve within these constraints. And so, but I think that thinking to divergently, I guess would be a better way of saying it. Divergent thinking is so vitally important on this to where, like, think about where you can bring in vertical capabilities if need be, right? So whether that's just as a firefighter bringing in your, you know, whether it's integrated into your air pack or it's separate, taking in your 50, 75 foot bailout system, right? Because you can use that for 15 other things. One, right. being like, I need to throw this dude out a window quick because we found a potential explosive device in the hallway and we're on the third story and I'm going to mutter hitch his casualties out as quick as possible and then bail out myself because we don't want to go back and expose ourselves in a hallway where uh, where we're going to take a blast and need a blast. But, you know, understanding, like, have a vertical capability yeah. if needed. Have a capability in case that collapse occurs. If things went down in Columbine the way they were supposed to, then we all would be training on active shooter collapses <laughs> every day since 1999 exactly. because that yep. would have been what killed the majority of people. So have a collapse capability. Because of the proliferation of, of the use of explosive devices, uh, fire's a weapon. How are you going to manage that, man, to have a, an idea how that's going to go? Uh, we've seen that used extremely successfully overseas yep. from mall attacks to embassy attacks to all these type of things. Like fire's a weapon, super inexpensive, and it's something we need to be aware of. Obviously, your hasty packaging techniques, getting outside of like, uh, want a full freaking backboard and Stokes and Skedco and four guys to carry it. And like, come on, like seriously, like 
<laughs> that, that may be your primary, but like that's probably not the most. Pipe dream. So, so, yeah, exactly. And then obviously, and, if, and these are all it's NFP three thousand topics too, right? And then obviously vehicle yes. rescue and extraction uh, because of the use of vehicles, man. Uh, not just in the UK and, and overseas, but also in New York is why that's in there. So you know, I think that's that's critical. Um, and we'll get into this a little bit more when we talk about REMS. But uh, you know, realize when you can you can. You can exploit the shit out of NFPA 1006 for any of those disciplines because they don't constrain you to the equipment or technique you use, man. Nowhere in 1006 does it dictate at all that you use your 12.5 or 11 millimeter rope, not one bit. And if you were concerned about that using NFPA T or NFPA G rated crap then just know you can throw that out the window right now because of uh section 1.1.5 and the scope of 1983 tells you if you are doing outside anything outside and normal with other hazards please do not use this guideline if you have other performance parameters that are needed for the context of your rescue Res- rescue task force would fit that like 100 percent of the time 100 percent, absolutely and you nfpa 3000 is actually like once you really dive down and kind of understand what they're trying to portray they're basically just telling you, hey, man, this is the definition of the nonlinear environment. Like these tactics are always changing. Um, we're always going to be reactive to whatever the event is. And any of these multitude of problems, um, basically, they're enabling us to come up with creative solutions that nobody's thought of yet. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to efficiently respond to such an event. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, that's it. So I think keeping your mind open, trying to constantly, like if you do something good, like do that, don't keep training on it. Like find where your blind spots are, find where your gaps are, find where your, your team sucks and find solutions, man. Like don't suck. Yeah. And don't like, suck. that's it, man. And in the end, like embrace the fact that you found something that you suck at because now that Absolutely. will sucker punch you in real life rescue man so like constantly search for your yeah. areas of of weakness man and identify that and be like all right man like this is not good at all like this is not good <laughs> open about it address it and and then make it so it's not a weakness anymore and so you know embrace that yep. gap analysis instead of just training for shit that's in a bell curve because we've never not been good at something in a bell curve it you everything has gone bad on every event that we do aars on because it was something that was in a blind spot yeah makes sense man yeah uh, just do it right. more oh yeah all right man why don't we hit on some rems which is kind of the priority but i took us off topic with a lot of rescue task force but i think the two <laughs> will kind of blend well when we start talking about standards and having to rethink the problem a little bit so rems for those yeah. people that are not on the west coast in crazy ass wildland firefighting deals <laughs> that sometimes last for like a month and longer or whatever give us a quick background on it and then we'll kind of dive into it but it is a topic i mean even at eiders i don't know if it was last year or year before there was actually a presentation on rems uh on the at the international technical rescue symposium but uh we got a lot of documents it's catching on Uh, i think it's pretty cool um but yeah give us your take on it just because you are out there in the midst of all things rems yeah so um rems so stands for the 
rapid extraction module support. Um, and actually I think it has a few different names, but that's not really important, but basically, um, for all the city firefighters and stuff, it's basically the Rick team for wildland started or the idea came around, uh, 2008, I think somewhere in there, but it's, it's kind of like a West coast idea. And basically what you got are these, uh, large scale campaign fires that last for weeks and or months, um, you know, tear through towns and then up through national parks and state parks and back down the other side. And what was starting to happen was, uh, you know, we're having incidents within an incident and guys were getting hurt. Um, and then maybe like, you know, the inversion layer sets in as the sun's going down and all of a sudden all the aircraft are grounded. Um, you have really bad visibility on the ground um, to drive in and you're trying to execute these, um, you know, what are pretty complex rescues. And so this idea of RIMS came about to bring in, you know, technicians um, and basically create a RIC team that focuses on rope rescue to go in um, typically in steep, you know, burn through canyons or, uh, you know, rocky, loose talus, scree slope, uh, falling, burn through trees, you know, compromised environments and go uh, affect rescue. So that's kind of the idea behind it. Gotcha. Yeah, and it is. It's kind of like you said before, it's kind of almost like a rapid intervention crew, rapid intervention team for wildland firefighter, for line firefighters where incidents occur. And I, I read through some of the cases where and they're out there. You can just kind of Google it. But incidents that kind of drove people to saying, hey, we need a specialized team that comes in and does these evacuations, does the access packaging medical some medical care whatever you can get done in that environment and get them out quickly to whatever evacuation platform to the correct medical care facility so it brings up a lot of different things right so you have that kind of rick component it also kind of has a a little bit of a a qrf type feel to it at the same time there's positions of wilderness search and rescue obviously along with your high angle type stuff that you'd have from both those from 1006 but you'd almost key in some of the care, I think, as we've talked about before, is a little prolonged field carry uh, and, and can turn that way in, in a heartbeat. And when you look at the the role of this, it's really interesting, right? It, it's it's almost kind of a, uh, almost an outlier uh, CSAR almost type of thing, which mm-hmm. is kind of which is kind of interesting, but more to the context of what you're going to be running into on the fire side. So when we started talking yeah. about this, it was it was interesting because I'm like, man, like, oh, that's really cool. And then it's like, holy shit, like this is really a this is a really a complex problem. I'd yes. be really interested yeah. to see how people are doing that because <laughs> uh, it, there's so much to it that it, it would be easy to find gaps or holes that haven't been thought out correctly or easy buttons that have been hit to say, oh, you know what? We could probably just do it with this. And when I looked at the fire scope, I think you know, it was a well-written document, but in it, you're like, oh gosh, they're talking about like, in some cases, like NFP, AG, maybe some T, technical or general use stuff. And I'm like, holy crap, like yeah. I wouldn't even, I, that, that would not even <laughs> be my consideration if you're moving that way because the teams itself, when you look on it, they say, hey, as a minimum requirement, this is what we suggest. You can go beyond that, whatever. But when you're looking at it, basically I'm looking at the training and experience requirements. It's a four-man team. 
Yep. And you know, when you're looking at that, you're going, okay, what are the requirements on this? Okay, all everybody has to be low angle rope rescue operational uh, certification. Then at least two members have to have high angle rope rescue operations. Then you have a team leader who's single resource boss qualified. Uh, team members, firefighter one or two, and wildland fire line qualified, and obviously a bunch of physical fitness. But what you just said is they're bringing this isn't organic to the wildland teams this right. is by like municipality firefighters exactly. coming in that are yeah. probably way more versed in very urban structural type stuff um although obviously where you guys are you you all have you know wildland uh experience but like this is this is very but very this is different. different oh gosh yeah and so that and i think like right off the bat you start reading these after action reports and the the first glaring problem that it was a theme in multiple of these were that you have uh you know what could be well-qualified municipal city departments sending out uh, you know a structural base based firefighting crews out into the wildland and because rims is still kind of a low-hanging fruit it's not a priority on the ordering resources right now you basically maybe have one maybe two teams for an entire incident that could be the size of you know some small east coast state rhode island or something and just in that alone they're already behind the eight ball but then you know maybe their physical fitness isn't the best and then all of the municipalities you know that you've talked about on previous podcasts you know the g-rated stuff the 11 mil rope with the steel carabiners and stuff that's what these guys are bringing and then having to hike in miles and miles in compromised terrain and terrible conditions breathing smoke and low light and they have never practiced this whatsoever and they're and they're supposed to be the rick team going into effect rescue right now yeah, it's funny that you said that as, as far as a low-hanging fruit and not a lot of priority being put on it, but that's really writ also. And it's one of those cases where you have a um, – you know, the, the incidence of this having to get enacted isn't extremely high. It's probably not on every single fire or possibility every single day of that long fire, but – it's a high consequence. Like when it happens, it's a big impact. Exactly. And, and that's yeah. the problem, right? That's, and I think that's, you know, that's in writ too. And, you know, there's ways of doing that, you know, uh, certain departments have tried to mitigate, right. And we already talked about, you know, mitigating risk versus uncertainty is two different things, but they try and mitigate it by saying, Hey, you know, we're going to teach survival, which is an absolute paramount for structural firefighting, right? Teaching firefighter yeah. survival. And we're, we're doing, you know, uh, lunar and all these little acronyms of, of radio communications and, and how to yep. save yourself, which is huge. That kind of corresponds with a response coming in after you call our mayday. But in a case like this, man, it's a different, it's a different thing. You're not talking about an isolated structure. You're talking about a, a large, large square mileage area that you would have to respond to that's that yeah. can change very very quickly because of conditions and when you look into a lot of these aars man that that's some scary shit man and there's been a lot of really interesting research that like everybody like a lot of hro studies wildland firefighting they're one of the earliest yep. adopters of hro and like they have they have taken it to a whole nother level man like those dudes, yeah. it created some incredible stuff but even carl white has written some incredible papers on you know dropping your tools and things like this on and i, I really think to to tie this in i would almost say carl white's paper on on drop you know drop your tools is huge for this because it would relate to the the rems people that would be coming from municipal 
fire departments to respond to this. And, and the whole thing behind Drop Your Tools, when he wrote about it, was there was a bunch of, of cases where wildland firefighters were having to do emergency egresses off sides because the winds changed and now the fire's chasing them up a hillside or up a canyon. All these guys were found dead with all these heavy ass tools in their hands. <laughs> and what was interesting is they what makes them wildland firefighters they believed was that equipment, what they had. They're yeah. not gonna drop Don't their chainsaw. Exactly, yeah. right? And we learned yeah. the same thing Take in Churchill, right? <laughs> exactly, man. Like do not, you know, come into this place without a halligan, without your irons, yeah. without this now. But what's uh, interesting about it is day one, man. <laughs> exactly. And but when this emergency egress, like run for your freaking life call goes yeah. out People were dying with these tools, and so they had to start teaching people, listen, like, you need to drop your tools. You're carrying, like, 100 extra pounds of shit, man. Like, yep. dump it and run for your life. They have all these pictures and stuff that's just like, holy shit. Like, all these guys uh, with chainsaws in their hands burnt dead, you know? And you're like, my yeah. goodness. And yep. then there was another critical case where after they started employing that mindset that – there's another, and I can't remember what it is. I'll, I'll find it and post it and put the paper on uh, with the podcast. But it was crazy where two people, I think, decided like to drop their tools. Everyone else kept it, and all but these two people died. <laughs> and the guy dropping it, the guy that uh. made the final decision to drop his tool, like, why am I carrying this heavy-ass chainsaw? He even talks about when he went to put it down on the ground, he put it down on the ground very nicely – yeah. Right, didn't just like throw it as he's right being chased. Up. Right, put it down very nicely as to be able to come back and get it. Yeah. yeah. Right, and in the end, yeah, like he barely made it out, and you're like, holy crap! Like it's what you know. And in the case, it's you know they they drawn correlations like now NASA, you know, dropping the tools of having to have you know make decisions with the you know on the Challenger where they weren't even allowed to discuss it if the engineers couldn't produce an N of data to support what they're saying something that can be plugged into an equation and they're like hey those are your tools so in the end it goes across multiple things like you got to drop what you think is is really important and look at what the overall mission is and in the end you know fire municipal fire departments are gonna have to drop their concept their tools thinking traditional shit nfpa steel shit 12 and a half is even listed on this 12 and a half millimeter listed on this and the thing is is they they put it into two parts right they have it as like hey if you're bringing your kit in this is what we recommended kit for if you're coming in by a vehicle and you can get close enough or this is the one where you're hiking it in and you're looking at this and you're like oh my gosh man like yeah it's not Holy great. shit! It's not and I, I totally cut you off. Yeah, I totally cut you off on what you're going to say. But what were you? No, when, and it's. I mean, I, there's there's so much to talk about here, and maybe just to give a little context um, to summarize one of the AARs. Uh, uh, hot shot crew is in a deep canyon, uh, felling trees, and there the fire has uh, pseudo kind of already burned through the crown. Uh, tree falls on a guy on both of his legs, breaks a femur. He's receiving second third degree burns. Uh, his hotshot crew extinguishes the flames. They call for a fireline medic. They call for a rims team because they can't buck this tree and get it off of them. And so here's like kind of just this classic story of this this municipal fire department shows up. And I I know that they are a capable structure fighting fire department. But it, reading this article, you know, I think there's a lot of good lessons learned. But they show up, you know, not in great shape. They show up with too much equipment, with really heavy, arduous equipment that they're trying to hike in. They eventually build systems and do multi-pitch rappel down to this guy. 
and then it just kind of all starts to fall apart. The fireline medic can't push pain control because he's from a different state. Uh, they eventually extract him out from under this tree and get him on a backboard, and they're trying to build systems to pull him back up, but they're taking so long because they're building these municipal redundant systems um, with a main and a belay that at the end of the day, the hotshot crew is so fed up, and these guys are in great shape. You know, the, the Billy goes to the fire service. They ended up just throwing their buddy over their shoulder and hiking out, you know, with great pain caused, caused to their friend. But that was the best case scenario at that point. And that's kind of like the summary of a lot of these incidents where the rim team just took too long. Their systems are too complex. They're overweight. Uh, the system is, or their equipment is overweight and they're not in the best physical shape. And the, the whole process just takes too long. And so again, going back to like self survival, you know, team survival, it's, it's, you got to save yourself first. Your crew should then, you know, save you. But if, if the rims team is the last resort, I don't believe they're really being empowered to be the best last resort. You know, you look at this loadout list, you look at the training and the low hanging fruit kind of process. Like if you really put value in that Rick team, then you need to empower them to do the, the best job they can, because that's truly your last resort. So that's kind of my take on the, on the loadout list here. It's a lot of room yeah. for improvement. It <laughs> is. You know, and I think, you know, the, the bad part about this is, is we get in these things there's this classic paper i don't know if you ever read it man but it's i think it was written in like 1968 it was rock and ice magazine um but it's called the games climbers play what's funny is it talks about these divisions that exist within climbers and climbing right and so to say you're a climbing uh climber is is kind of a misrepresentative of what's up and uh and so you got like if you talk to a guy that does sport versus a guy that does trad you 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 have two different complete philosophies, right? And the two don't really talk to each other because the guy's like, oh, dude, like, we place our own, you know, we don't use bolts like this, blah, blah, blah. But then you go from that guy to the boulder or you go from the boulder or the sport or track climber and you go into the the dude who's doing expedition climbing in the Himalayas and they all keep their own boundaries up, man, right? And there's rules, right? So as you go in, like, let's say from to bouldering where you're not able to use any equipment, right? You're not putting in anything. And some of these, right. you know, that's called bouldering isn't like the regular size boulder. It's some pretty big stuff. Or you go all the yeah. way into like free climbing, like Honnold or something like the rules that get put in there are very weird. And we see that you could literally, I mean, that would be a funny paper, man. That funny, but really <laughs> good probably um, is to do it like the, the game. Yeah. yeah, it would be like the game's rescuers play, right? Is, you know, you compare technical <laughs> rescue with their twin systems and a belay and mainline and the time it takes to do this and what's what your anchors need to be and all this other stuff going to your fast and light stuff for expedition stuff or getting into canyon rescue and and then that division into mountain rescue where all of a sudden people are like dude what are you doing like yeah we don't even have anchors in these canyons in some places man so we'll yeah. we'll, we'll yeah. use this you know or this or that but then we're backing it up with a meat anchor which is just another rescuer clipped into the anchor on a muncher to where if that anchor blows you know what they're gonna do it's a completely different philosophy yeah. because now all of a sudden you're getting into like improvised stuff you're getting into meat anchors you're getting into different anchor craft where you're using dead man anchors or you know you're using things that are releasable releasable anchor systems there isn't twin system there is no belay system and a lot of these things man like you are just nope. moving and doing it because you know your equipment really well and yeah. you know it works and the equipment you choose has a bunch of different uses it's very fast it's very quick and it's made for small party assisted rescues i i think when you look at this is you know doing all these different disciplines just like you through the years 
we've got to change on a dime depending on who we're training or showing people how to look at the problem different and change the way that they they roll their mindset on the what is their static safety factor and and stuff like that so I, yeah. I, I, I think there is. I think there is a lot of room <laughs> for for <laughs> for improvement on this. But yeah. it's uh, man, like it, it that, seems like it would be very sketchy right now. Yeah, and you're and you're combating uh, decades of traditional rope rescue fire service, you know, criteria. That, you know, that's actually not down. not even based <laughs> in reality. Exactly. Part, right. Yeah. I mean, it's not even basically you, know, you get people that are still using a wrap three pull two because they believe it's a it's that for strength and security yeah. compared to a basket hitch. And you're wrong. Right. And I, you're I, wrong. I still, I'll still <laughs> use a, a wrap three pull two if I need the anchor to be constrictive higher up on a tree. Like exactly. if we're doing a high line or something. Yeah, then that's what it is. But it's not because it's stronger than a basket hitch because it's not. Well, and that's a, what a lot of this comes down to is people. It, it, it says right on this list that you need two technicians, you know, with high angle experience. Right. Those guys, in our opinion, you know, they're supposed to be the dudes that understand that, that understand the pros and cons of different anchors and the different strengths that they can hold and withstand. Um, that all the equipment that you're bringing out, like you need to have a good in-depth knowledge and understanding of its capabilities and more than one way on how to use it. So it's hard, I guess, to, I mean, I, they say it's hard. I, I don't really believe it, but they're, they're, you know, they're trying to train to the lowest common denominator in your fire department stuff. And I, I kind of just don't buy into that. You know, I feel like if you were going to be on a rims team at that technician level, like it's incumbent upon you to understand your equipment and its capabilities. Um, but then also, you know, going back, back to the HRO stuff is like your employer needs to be able to empower you to make those critical task decisions uh, when you have to. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, one thing I think maybe we should do is is not we're obviously not going to solve all the world's problems today. But I think even Dang giving it. people that I know, I know I wanted to, but <laughs> I think I think it's just because of um, we started this later in the day, man, you know, or else we probably could have knocked out most of things like world hunger True. and shit. But what, but things that I think would be valuable if anybody is listening on this that does participate or <laughs> looking to create their their uh, a REMS program is one of the things that that I think we need to hit on right now. And it's on a bunch of our podcasts obviously so it's a little bit of a broken record is understanding you know the first thing that jumps out on me is the standard equipment list right the sel that's on here and it starts off with your two 200 foot ropes nfpa 1983 technical or general use and then two 300 foot ropes nfpa 1983 technical or general use you know two 150 foot ropes nfpa 1983 technical uh 9.5 three inch to 12.5 millimeter half inch Four descent control devices, twenty-two carabiners, and I'm like, dude, what in the fuck are you using twenty-two? Car-? Like, I, you know, and, and when you go through it, like we've done a lot of like how to move fast and light for for you know soft units and stuff like this. Yeah. But I'm looking at this, and a lot of this is is a gear packing list of an urban technical rescue team where exactly. you have you have the manpower. It's completely wasted shit. Um, You you are only going to use a certain amount of things. You know, very rarely will you ever find yourself in a position where we got to simultaneously do a lower and a haul. Um, (laughs) You know, you know what I'm saying. But and and as you go through this, I'm looking at everything from bicycle pumps to 
tire plugs to to pickets. You know, uh, oh gosh, yeah, pickets and gotta pickets. love the pickets, right? And so what pickets? I mean, like we use pickets, man. We use improvised yeah. pickets, um, improvised pickets, and yeah. in, at the same time, oh, dude, we were doing them up at uh, you know at the training site in California there, and in, in some of the canyons right off to to where we do those the classes up north of you, and and we found some rebar on the ground that was just cut rebar. None of them were greater than a foot longer, but if you understand soil dynamics and you understand pickets, dude, we did pickoffs on them. That was it. We didn't have a backup anchor. Um, you know, I've got some pictures. Maybe I should hang those pictures in there or whatever, but you don't have to have that. But if you, even if you look at DMM, like DMM has those lightweight things that weigh less yeah. than the, the five anchors for for their ground anchor system, which is kind of picket-y, if you will, picket-ish. Yeah, um, picket-ish. Is those five yeah. things that you can spread out in different different angles, and they're all attached, but they're so freaking lightweight, yep. and you just drive them down very, very quickly. We've used those a ton in a lot of different soils, even really loose soils, and had really good success with those. But when you're looking at it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is this is a packing list that is so it, it, it's it's trying to make the circle fit through the square, and it's not yeah. going to work, man. Like this is I, I can't imagine four people carrying in even a fraction of what I'm looking at on a no. suggested and gear list. It, yeah, that makes my fire truck hurt just looking that, at this kind of stuff. That's the problem. It does, and but I think right off the bat, <laughs> if, we, if we can help anybody, I think the big thing that that was right off the bat is get off your. Um, desire to say that shit is NFP 1983 certified. You know, rescues are done several times a day all over the world with lightweight UIA certified stuff, right? Um, yeah. Just just the same heavy ass loads that that you anticipate you're going to be doing is done with with gear that is made for. Fast and light. It's certified EN UIA certified stuff. You know wh- when you when you look at let's say a progressive capture and you're even considering taking an MPD in, right? We would take a Adelrod Spock in, right? Or we used to take right. a micro traction an Adelrod Spock, which is it's what like two inches by two inches um and we've had three four person loads on this at any given time it's so efficient very very quick and weighs um ounces ounces yeah right it's, size it, of a half dollar if you will oh, but, yeah you know, exactly exactly nothing. and and dude <laughs> we, we, we've done 300 foot raises hauls on one and two person loads uh, up canyons on this thing, man. Like yeah. it is, it is baller, man. And your safety factor yeah. is money, you know, because we're using a lot smaller ropes also when we do this. But I would say right off the bat on 1983, for anybody that feels that, I'm going to direct quote it right here is look into the scope. So you're talking chapter one, the part that no one ever reads of 1983 or really <laughs> any freaking NFPA guideline. But understand, one, NFPA 1983 is a manufacturer guideline, not an end user guideline. The end user can use it to say, hey, listen, this is the environment we're going to go into. Let me see how NFPA certifies it when it tests it, right? So what are the testing conditions to see if it relates to something you'd be interested in? That's really all 1983 is is worth for the end user. Otherwise, it is made up. The whole It's made up by manufacturers. So when you look at who sits on this and you look at, let's say, CMC and Sterling and all these groups, at what point do you think that these manufacturers of rope and harnesses and runners and carabiners would be able to dictate what you use operationally never right so i mean talk to nfpa call them up man you know mckentley any of these guys and they will tell you straight up like no it's we don't 
say that you have to use this. It's your authority having jurisdiction. But just to relieve everybody is the the instant out of it is 1.1.5 in the document scope. It says this standard shall not specify requirements for any rope or associated equipment designed for mountain rescue, cave rescue, lead climbing operations, or where expected hazards and situations dictate other performance requirements. You got the out. That's it. Like if I would, yeah, that's, I mean, that's really all you need to know is if you're doing this psychotic type of rescue in this specific context, oh my gosh. I mean, they even throw it out just for mountain rescue though, just mountain rescue in general. Well, like, that, and that's what's crazy is like you can sprinkle magic fairy dust on this stuff. And it's like, oh, if you're in the mountains, it's OK. But if you're in whatever city of America, it's not OK yeah. just with some magic fairy dust. And that's the. Yeah. It's, step it's one is have an understanding of your rules. <laughs> I, I understand that. And don't follow rules yeah. that already tell you don't follow our rules if you do. Exactly. This. Right. Yeah. So that's that's step one. The problem is, is just the you know, you brought it up, man, like tradition, you know, the fire services is you know second only in tradition to the catholic church man and so when, when you look into that people just do it and they're like hey why why do you do that and they're like because yeah, that's the way that's, we do it that's yeah, what that's, he said that's, that's the, the shit sandwich that was handed down over the last you know couple of generations so you know in the end you can get so uber light on this it's unbelievable you know i'm looking at this and i'm like you would not need yeah. anything more than a totem rack at least on one if you had two totem racks on two of your guys oh you'd be money and a totem rack money. itself is money. your entire hardware package everything you need including you know most basic anchors and you're talking yeah. each one of those is under three pounds totally i mean yeah you throw and that, a couple, that's a heavy. couple uh, aztec bags and some webbing and you're off and running man oh you're done man like, you're good and you just <laughs> cut your weight by like one one hundredth of the fucking weight that what you're looking on here yeah, but realize totally. like if you're looking at if it says nfpa 1983 in there you should say um I would say, you know, killer Mike, man, right? Like, kill your masters. <laughs> it's that, that I NFP is. I was wondering not, when you're going to slip it in there. Like yeah, it, it, it's not, man. It's, it's like, kill your masters. Like, it is not. And they don't want to be your master for this. They actually say, don't use no. this if. So, like, take their word for it. If they can't tell you, don't use this for. If you're doing this, yeah, I would I would say, yeah, follow that. And yeah. look at other disciplines. Look at canyon yeah. rescue. Look at some other mountain rescue teams that aren't rolling heavy and shit that are low, you know, small party assisted rescue type stuff. And you can cut your gear down here and still maintain the safety factor you want to, man. Yep. And in the end, yeah, and you, what is your safety factor? If you, I'm carrying, if I'm carrying a, a freaking, let's say we're 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 just balling this dumb, and we're we're like, let's do NFPAG. We need uh, you know, we, we need our our freaking forty kilonewton, you know, roughly nine thousand nine hundred ninety eight pound freaking rated rope, and we got steel carabiners at at least forty kilonewtons. This is what I would ask you. Okay, so you have all this kind of shit. What do you anticipate your fucking anchor to be? When you're doing a REMS operation, because I'm going to tell you, oh, God, like you're not finding this. And and that's the thing people don't realize. You may be approaching from the burn side, man. And that's and, you know, that's a perfect segue kind of into some of the other problem stuff. So now that you've hiked all this gear in and you've, you know, gotten to your destination and we're obviously in some sort of environment where the the people can't get out. So you're going into an effective rescue. Your environment is probably significantly compromised at this point. That's probably what caused the emergency in the first place. So, you know, your your trees that you're used to slinging for anchors are now burned, burned over, burned through. Maybe not the the exterior of the tree, but maybe the root system. 
um, all the duff has been burned off. So now you're just left with really soft moon dust dirt, which if you've ever fought fire in California, man, like uh, anywhere up in the Santa Barbara mountains, uh, you know, in the, up in Shasta, like this moon dust is just like snow. So now like who's versed at building snow anchors in, in moon dust dirt in a compromised environment with no trees and loose rocks. And, uh, by the way, it's still smoky and hot and things are still on fire. Like it's a, it's a pretty bad worst case scenario for anchor craft. <laughs> it, it is man. And it is, you, like, you need to be well-versed in anchor craft. And the thing is, is like, you brought up a great point. Like what are your anchor options in there is, you know, you could try these, uh, you know, you probably need to learn different techniques, right? With dead man's, um, but that won't work great in the moon dust stuff, right? Cause you can't get down to a yep. soil that's going to hold what you need it to be. But you know, for instance, there's a couple canyons in Utah where you, you have no option. Like there is no, there, you have no anchors. You have nothing to sling, right. you have nothing, whatever. And there's a, there's a thing you can pull up there it's called a sand trap so there's literally one canyon specifically in the irish area of northwash where you have got to use um and actually there's a couple in there but you've got to use a sand trap and you can put it taco style or you can do it tostada style right but literally it's a releasable <laughs> anchor system that allows you to throw the weight of the dirt on there make sure that you hit a good angle you know going vertical where you're going vertical and it's either laying flat that has a couple inches of dirt laying on top of it that when you get to it you can pull the uh your pull line of it which basically helps the sand come out and then you can pull that back down and recover it or you're doing it taco style if you have the the geography or the topology to to do it that style that's releasable also but you know to think that you're going to have hey this is all we're going to do we're we just have one descent to do to get to this guy and we can leave the rope all already rigged up and good yeah. to go like you're, you're crazy man everything yeah, right. you're gonna run you're in, right. in, yeah, right. in, in there is, is gonna be a multi-pitch man you're gonna have to pull your Absolutely. anchor so you need to know how yeah. how to do a, a, a plethora of different releasable situations you know saying hey well i know how to do the the screw link knot version or you know on i know how to do mm-hmm. a, a toggle or i know you better have some depth of ass game man because you your environment's yeah. gonna tell you what the hell you're gonna be able to use not you the, well, i can't you know, believe you First of all, I can't believe you just bring up tacos and tostadas like that to the to the SoCal guy. Without I love, it. I know, man. Morning. And that's why I love it. I, I, I you know, it's, I, it's that's always a soft spot in my heart. I know, man. And so, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's an incredible technique, you, and they, it's it's one of those things that like you know there are some great tools out there that are used. And the thing to remember too is like these are used by recreational people. And that's and that's the difference. Like you, you bring up retrievable anchors, or you bring up the talk of meat anchors to a municipal firefighter, and they're gonna come at you <laughs> with something fierce because they don't understand it, they don't train it, they don't practice it, they don't know the science behind it. But whatever they're gonna come up with on a multi pitch rappel and leaving all their gear behind because that's the only thing they know, it's just, it's just not gonna work. Good Lord. Yeah. And it's scary, you know, and I think, you know, for, for those people, I would tell you, man, like getting in and researching canyoneering, it would, would be incredible. Um, yeah, we, we basically dove, we dabbled in canyoneering for a long time, but we dove like, you know, instead of just tipping your toe into it, like we dove, you know, balls deep into this thing (laughs) probably about, I don't know, 12 years ago. And in the end we cut out when we do trainings and trips to, for the upper level, vertical people um on climbing teams and stuff in socom that that is that is where we go like that is your that is your testing ground man that is that is what takes you literally one week one week in a canyon in in utah and they have some incredible canyons in california also but when you look into that 
especially the ones in Utah. And then we went from Utah, and then the final echelon is when we go to Italy with them. And now you've got all the problems of canyons, but now couple that with now you're rappelling into hydraulics and a lot of moving water where you're swimming in between your anchor points, right? And it, it just adds these layers of complexity. But if you look at Utah, you can take uh, like the high-end freaking climbing team members that are just baller at shit, even mountain movement type stuff, but you put them in a canyon and at the end of five days, you cannot quantify how much better they are. Because when we say, hey, build an anchor, you literally are building a freaking anchor. Like you are looking (laughs) for rocks. You're stacking them in a certain way that doesn't constrict you pulling your rope out on a releasable. Like you are doing some stuff that, I mean, you are learning the behavior and nonlinear physics of anchor craft, which is is mandatory. Like you open up your horizons of opportunity to where like you you go to the Yoda level at that lo- at, at that nice and, and, and but, like but it's important because like we just assume we're going to have this or we assume we're going to have that the second you drop into your first canyon and it is no why you know you're a couple you're 200 300 feet deep in a canyon that you cannot stand forwards on because it's so narrow that you literally could just t- jump across 300 feet above you and you're down there once you pull that first line you're not climbing out on sandstone bro exactly like you're not yep. climbing so there's you're not like, ooh, <laughs> you're in it for the freaking long haul like you better have what you need or or not and you know and even looking up aars for canyoneering incidents which is you know what we do quite a bit you're yeah. able to gain so much fidelity on like ooh, i didn't think about that that nah, how would i handle yeah. that and like yeah. this, this reps thing is should be it should be its own discipline, and the beauty of it is it will be multi disciplines going into how you respond in this uh, yeah. constantly evolving, changing environment. And that's um, that's the thing, man. It's like you can we can talk about equipment all day long and, and break it down and stuff, but at the end of the day, I, I'm confident municipal teams know how to repel. I'm willing to bet you they could work their way through a lowering system, probably even build, you know, a three to one or a five to one to get people back up. But they, if they don't have their fire training tower there with all, with all of their normal anchors that they always use, they're going to find themselves at a significant disadvantage right from the get go. You know, so the one thing I would say is, you know, if you're heading this on for your department and you're going with this list, you better understand anchors and working in compromised environments and all the stuff that you just talked about from the canyoneering world and the mountaineering world you know you're talking ski patrollers and SAR teams in the backcountry they are all well versed at anchor craft it is and and it's it, there's a lot to it man right and it's it's how do you take a <laughs> shitty anchor and everybody's like hey listen you know it, you read your typical textbooks and stuff like that it's like if you have a marginal anchor and it's not a bomber anchor then you need to make a multi-point anchor right and I love that. That's great. Except what if you don't have anything else to make a multi-point anchor out of, man? Like you yeah. have what you have. What you and, and now now you have to start thinking, okay, I need this anchor super ass low. And I need to take it over one of the most critical harder edges. Because I know that if I do a soft start without standing up and I slide over on my left hip and I'm able, I can put about, you know, in some cases up to 70% of my weight on that edge and my anchor won't feel it. Compared to if I stand up, I'm creating a lever. So, you know, your 200 pound dude will end up creating almost 400 pounds of force if he's standing up going over an edge transition like we would on a fire tower 
because you're a lever. You're creating a lever onto your anchor <laughs> um, compared to that same 200-pound guy can do a, a butt start. And even if he slips, he's not going to dynamically load his system any more than one inch. Uh, but yeah. as he goes over that edge, I can now have that same 200-pound guy put only 60 pounds of force on that anchor. So you can increase your safety factor dramatically, not by anything with equipment, but only with technique. And yeah. it, it's that type of knowledge to be able to put you know, the rock exotica enforcers on your anchors and train and see how you can exploit nonlinear physics and be like holy shit man i could do this or i could do that because this is a this is a dangerous game uh in this whole rem thing and on top of that all we're talking about is rescue on top of that they're bringing yeah. med kit med, med kit in with them too man which is kind of where the, some of the components of prolonged field care come in well yeah and they've had full extrications uh you know rolled over dozers and tenders where they've had to get you know battery operated or hand hydraulic extrication equipment in just to do a cut so this is just the beginning of getting it like you have a whole nother set of problems once you're there trying to get back out and yeah and pfc is is a huge component that nobody's even talking about you know in the municipal fire realm it's it's definitely popular right now in the ccc world and the military is obviously leading the charge but nobody's talking about that uh you know at the city kind of level which would be a great segue man so um one thing that people need to be aware of is about a year ago man we adopted a lot of the original writers of pfc from the military who are now retiring but still train all the soft guys and all this other crap so they started a civilian pfc committee uh within the tactical emergency the tecc committee so we brought them in and let them run wild and a lot of this is stuff for USAR disasters you know conus oconus responses and all these things where you were going to have to sit on that patient for a little bit and getting them to a medical treatment facility could be delayed or you may have to bivouac um you know depending on the conditions with your casualty and how do you how do you do that and so i I did a podcast with uh, dennis from the pfc working group and and the podcast saying that definitely go on and people should listen to some of their podcasts and we actually did a rescue one for them not too too long ago but listen to some of the the thought considerations of of using analgesics and this and this and how to do that you know if you've got a guy that can still walk a little bit like understand and get voodoo on multimodal pain uh control because you want him to continue walking if he's got a broken arm and then when you've got to package him up or the pain or whatever gets it gets too much then be able to do that but i want that guy using his own freaking legs if he can use them for part of that extraction because speed is your security man like time is uh, is of the essence especially in evolving conditions but if you look at that pfc stuff and and you look at that i think there's some there's some critical components that that are really valuable to that because just like on these guidelines they break it up into like a truck versus ruck type of thing pfc does really this a very similar thing and then they base their stuff as the equipment you carry on kind of this good better best type of of thing and i think it's a good framework um that's easily adaptable that I would use definitely into this thing. We should probably just call Sean Keenan and, and Roger and do a podcast <laughs> with them and, and start bouncing ideas yeah. just from the medical side of it and, yeah. and kind of blend that with what we're talking about from the rescue side because this, this, is a, this is a complex problem. And to think like, hey, we got this because we're following some shit on this fire skip, I, I think is very much a – it's the platonic fold, man. Like it's, yeah. it's all good until it's not. It's and then, th- then they're going to do an AAR and change it. So maybe be proactive on it. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I echo that 100 percent, man. Time is against you. It's just like in the rescue task force stuff we're talking about, like the, that timetable is constantly against you. The same thing is going to go on here. And if you're not prepared for that long term kind of medical care scenario, um, as well as building that into your rescue plan, you know, you're just you're just going to be compounded with problems. Yeah. Yeah, that's an issue, yeah, man. man. That's an issue. Yeah. So, um, well, listen, what we may do is we should probably think about uh, we'll get some feedback from from some people uh, on this podcast and definitely hit it. You know, questions, just hit us at info at element or whatever. And I'll, I'll share with Brian and we'll kind of come up with some the questions that are out there and potentially do a second one on REMS. And I think what we probably should do is add some people into this. So people can hear yeah. from like the horse's mouth so i'll get one yeah. of the guys from 1983 or something on there um and i think you know in the end just because we're the fire service and we need to fall on certain things that are easy buttons most of this stuff will fit into an fpa 1006 man whether you're talking wilderness search and rescue or you're talking straight up 1006 chapter 5 of of rope rescue is the beauty of 1006 and the way that nfp is written is is they do not tell you a technique or equipment they just tell you the end state. You got to be able to ascend rope, descend rope, create a simple mechanical advantage, a compound mechanical advantage. Very, very easy, but they don't tell you. They don't constrict you with what you ha- how to do it or, right. or the technique or the equipment. And I think when we get a guy from 1983 on here, so you can hear from the horse's mouth, because we talk to them quite a bit on clarifying these things for SOCOM, you'll realize, man, like you, the handcuffs that you're putting on yourself for a shitty response isn't because of NFPA. It's because your yeah. interpretation or, or somebody's interpretation from decades ago of NFPA, which is probably wrong. And, exactly. you know, so I, I think bringing that in and then bringing the prolonged field care guys in and doing kind of a special edition of that, plus a little bit diving into some of the REMS application into it would be good. But uh, anything Sounds else awesome, man, before man. we tie this up? No, that sounds that sounds perfect, dude. I, I would applaud that effort because I think there's a lot of room for improvement here, and I think this is it's definitely gaining traction and gaining popularity. And I know teams are training and pushing for this, but um, there's still a lot of room, you know, to go on this kind of stuff. So I think that'd be a real good start. And uh, yeah, man, carry on. Word up! All right, I yeah. appreciate it, Brian. Um, Thanks, brother, we'll we'll hit it up here soon again and hit another one. Heck yeah. Cool. Thanks, man. You got it.